The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Good morning. So good to be here with you. So good to be back. Some of you were like, you were gone? I was. I was gone. Uh, we we just got back, my wife and I and our two kids were on a Took a two and a half week road trip over 2,000 miles with two little kids. I don't know if that was my brightest idea ever or not, but we're home and I think we still love each other. So, so I think, uh, I think overall it was a good, good vacation. Thanks to Ben for preaching the last two Sundays and for our team for leading so well. Um, and I'm excited to be back today. We're jumping into a new short series that we're going to cover for the next three weeks called Good News. Why the gospel, which literally means good news, why the good news of what Jesus did for us is so important that it shouldn't just change our lives, but we should invite others to join us on this journey of faith, about sharing our faith, what God has done in our lives with others. One of my my favorite movies when I was young, um, and still is one of my favorite movies to this day, is, uh, is the original Mission Impossible movie. You know, remember that original Mission Impossible movie? Now, if you would have asked me like the other day, well, how old is Mission, the first Mission Impossible? I would have been like, I don't know. It's like came out 10, 15 years ago. It came out 27 years ago. Tom Cruise looks the same. You and I don't look the same as we did 27 years ago. That's safe to say, right? And, and the, I love that the movie, it's so good with the plot and the action. It gave us one of my favorite action movie scenes when he dives down into the secret vault to steal the secret spy list from the computer. And the movie is dated because if you remember, how does he steal and get out the secret list of spies off of the computer? He puts it on a floppy disk. Kids, just ask your parents at home. They maybe have one in a box upstairs somewhere in a garage. You're like, what? Well, what is a floppy disk? Yep, that, that's how he steals this vital piece of information. I think I and lots of people like movies like this because we love this idea of a monumental task, a mission that we would play a vital role in. Right, like we see Tom Cruise's character, and we're like, wow, he has all these things that are relying on him that he has to do. Wouldn't it be great if there was something in my life, some great purpose, some great mission that I had that was far beyond myself that I play a vital role in? The reality is, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a part of a mission that God has given to all of his followers that's far bigger than yourself. And every single Christian plays a vital role in the mission of God to the world. And we're going to look at that mission today. If you have a Bible, feel free to open up with me. We're going to be in the book of Matthew, chapter 28. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. The 28th chapter is the last one. We're going to be looking at the last three verses of this book of Matthew chapter 28, starting at verse 18. This passage that we're going to look at today is is commonly called and known as the Great Commission. It's Jesus's last words recorded in this book to his disciples. And it's kind of like, all right, I, I lived life. I died. I rose again. Now what? Now, now what is, is the job? What is the responsibility of his disciples? And this mission that he gives is not just for them, but for us as well. So let's read together. Matthew 28, starting at verse 18, says this. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This mission, as I just said, that that Jesus gives the disciples isn't just for them 2,000 years ago. But if you're a follower of Jesus, if you consider yourself a Christian, this is the mission that God has given for you and for me that should be a guiding focus in our lives as well. This morning, as we look at this passage, we're going to look at four keys to living out the Great Commission in our lives. Four keys to having this mission become an essential reality and a part of who we are. And the first key to living out the Great Commission is to recognize Jesus's authority. The first key in living out this mission of God in the world and being a part of it is to recognize Jesus's authority. He starts right away in verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, if you've ever read through any of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you may have picked up on this idea that The authority of Jesus is a really big deal in his life. A lot of the debates that they have with with the religious leaders are, are, who is this man? How does he have the authority to do these things? Or the authority to claim and to make the claims? The authority to teach the things that he's teaching? In fact, most of the miracles that Jesus does while on earth, a large reason he does them are to prove his authority over different realms. Jesus doesn't just perform miracles of nature just to show off and be like, wow, that was cool but it's to show his authority that he has as God over nature. Jesus doesn't just cast out demons for the sake of casting out demons. He does it to show his authority over the spiritual realm. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus itself shows the authority that Jesus has over death itself. And there's two important aspects when we think about the authority of Jesus for us to understand in living out the Great Commission. The first is the permanence of Jesus's authority. The permanence of Jesus's authority. You could read this and be like, all right, well, Jesus made this claim 2,000 years ago, but we don't live 2,000 years ago. So he doesn't really have authority anymore. But when the Bible talks about Jesus's authority, it's a permanent authority that continues on even to this day. In many of the passages talking about Jesus after the resurrection, it says that he ascended to the Father and sits at the right hand of God. The idea of someone being seated means the work is done, it's completed, and his position there is permanent and secure. That he, he is permanently at the prominent role, the, the sign of authority being at the right hands. That Jesus himself is the king over all. Many scholars, and I tend to agree with them, think that, that often what Jesus is doing in this passage is taking the prophecy in Daniel 7, this messianic prophecy, and applying it to himself right then and there. Daniel 7 says this, starting at verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, that's the Messiah who we know as Jesus, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. See, Jesus's authority is not just a temporary thing that he had many years ago, but his authority continues that he reigns and rules as God, as king over all permanently, even to this day and for eternity. So we need to first recognize the permanence of his authority. The second thing that we need to understand about Jesus's authority is the extent of his authority. The extent of Jesus's authority that he's claiming here. And he lays it out for us, verse 18. All authority where? 
in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Heaven and earth are these comprehensive terms for not just the physical, but the spiritual world as well. Jesus is saying, all things are under my authority. In fact, heaven and earth brings back the very first verse in the Bible in Genesis 1.1, where it says, in the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. Now Jesus claims what? All authority over heaven and earth has been given to me. Everything created, Jesus is saying, is under my authority. As the theologian Abraham Kuyper put it many years ago, there is not one square inch in the whole of creation over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And if Jesus has authority over heaven and earth, over all things, then that certainly includes your life and my life as well. That by Jesus claiming authority over heaven and earth, he's claiming authority over us as well. Now, it's easy for us as Christians to speak of Jesus's authority in generalities, right? In big general terms, right? It's, it's not surprising to come to a church and hear a pastor talk, Jesus is king overall. We're like, yeah, the Bible says that. that that's easy. We get that, right? That's not a mind-blowing concept. We, we like to, and it's easy for us to think about Jesus having authority in general terms. It's a lot harder for us when it starts to, to speak to the specifics of you and me and our situations and in our lives, Because see, for every single one of us, there are things in our life that we want to hold authority over and don't want to submit to Jesus. And the thing is, these will shift in time. The the things that we have now, we're like, hey, 5, 10, 15 years ago, this wasn't a challenge for me, but, but now it is. And these will always come up in our lives. It's easy to talk about, yeah, God's the authority over all things, but about every single area of our life, sometimes we don't want him to be. This is why so many people will get upset the moment you start talking about money or finances in church. People think, no, 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 you don't get to tell me what I get to do with my money. With whose money, if you're a Christian? Who, Who has authority over your finances and how you should live and spend your life and spend your money and what values you should have with it? Who who has authority over that? Do you, or if you're a Christian, does Jesus have authority over that area of your life? This is why so many of us struggle when when we think about the future and my plans and my career and what I want to do. Well, is it just your plans in your life and your career, or is it what God would want for you as well? Where does he factor in? Because he has authority over your future as well. This is why so many people, especially in our world today, get so upset when we apply the Bible and Jesus' teaching to areas of sexuality. How dare you tell me who I am and what I can be? Well, Jesus, if you're a Christian, Jesus is your authority over all of your life. Every single area of it. That we're submit to him. And so it may not be easy, it may not be natural, but every single area of our lives is submit to the authority of Jesus and his rule and reign over us. See, for us to live on mission for God, we must recognize his authority and surrender every single area of our lives to him. So first, the first key is we must recognize Jesus' authority. The second key to living out the Great Commission is to live on the offensive. To live on the offensive. Now, I maybe should have phrased this a little bit better because some of you read this and you're like, go and offend people. You're like, perfect, I'm great at this. 
We don't need more obnoxious Christians. There's plenty of those already, right? Let's not make that our goal to be offensive and obnoxious people. But what I'm trying to capture here in living on the offensive is the first word, one single word in, in verse 19, and that's the word go. Jesus doesn't say all authority, so stay. No, he says all authority, so, so go. Go, therefore, go. If you're a part of sports like I was growing up, you may have heard the expression, the best defense is a good offense, to go out into the world. Jesus doesn't say, now is the time because the world is wicked and evil and far from me to batten down the hatches, circle the wagons and stay home and never go out anymore. He says, no, now is the time to go because the world is evil and broken and falling apart. So Christians need to go. In a similar passage after the resurrection in the gospel of John, Jesus said this, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. That as Christians, we are sent ones into the world, just as Jesus was sent by God the Father to come and redeem mankind, to die and to bring that message of good news, of reconciliation through what he's done. We are now sent out, just as he came to the world, we're sent out into the world with that message of what Jesus has done for us. In Acts, another parallel passage after the resurrection, it comes this way. Jesus says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This verse actually becomes the whole narrative structure of the book of Acts, which is the expansion of the church. Of We see the gospel first in Jerusalem. That's where they were when this was given. And we see the day of Pentecost coming and thousands of people believing. And then we see the ministry of Peter and the other disciples as the gospel goes out to the surrounding local areas in Judea and Samaria and people placing their faith in Jesus. And then it shifts to the apostle Paul as the gospel goes out to the ends of the known earth. That the gospel starts, but then it spreads. It goes out from where it started. See, for me, it's helpful when, when we think of Acts 1.8 and the gospel starting in a place and going out, being witnesses, testifying to what Jesus has done. It's helpful for me to think of the gospel as having an influence in concentric circles in our lives. Concentric circles. And so it starts in a place, right? It started for the disciples. It was in Jerusalem. That's where you're at right now. And so for us, first, we need to think of the gospel influence that we have in our homes, where God has placed us and the people we come in contact with every single day. Especially this is true for us if, if you're a parent today with kids, especially kids who still live at home. This is our primary mission field. We're called to go first to our homes, to our kids and help make disciples of them. That's where we're called to go. The second area is the surrounding region, right? They were to go to Judea and Samaria. For us, we can think about this is where God has placed you in your work, in your career, in your school. This is your neighborhood. This is your condo building. This is your HOA. This is where you live, the surrounding people that you come into contact with in your life. The gospel should have influence there. And lastly, to the ends of the earth, that there's no limit to where the gospel should go and the, and the influence that God could have in and through your life. We believe this as a church, that the gospel should go and needs to go to the ends of the earth. You may not realize this. We don't talk about it a lot. But for every, every dollar that comes in to our church, 10% of it we send out towards missions. Because our church wants to be a part of this great commission to spread the gospel, not just here in the South Valley, but to the ends of the earth. See, when Jesus calls on his disciples to go, when he calls on us to go, the reality is if you are a Christian, you are a missionary. 
If you are a Christian, you are called to be a missionary. Now, some of you are like, hold up. I don't want to go to a third world country without electricity and running water. Like, I, I like California. I like our climate. Me too. And the Bible's not saying that every single one of us, or even that most of us, should quit our jobs and go overseas to tell people about Jesus. But what the gospel is saying is that you go where God's placed you. What if Christians started seeing their lives as living as missionaries in Silicon Valley where God has placed them? What if you started seeing your life that way? See, the reality is you don't need to go somewhere overseas to where you can find non-Christians to share to tell the good news about Jesus. I talked about this before, but it's true that, that the Bay Area is the most unchurched area, a metropolitan area of anywhere in the United States. 61% of people in the Bay Area have zero religious affiliation. This isn't even including those who believe in religions that don't teach Jesus. This is just 61% of people have no religious affiliation. We are way ahead of second place, by the way. I think we're six percentage points ahead. So we're the most non-religious place in the U.S., and it's not close. If, if there's around 8 million people in the Bay Area, what that means is that you and I live in an area with 5 million people with no religious affiliation at all. We don't have to go somewhere else outside of this place to share the gospel. We have to go here. What if we started seeing our lives as missionaries to Silicon Valley? See, there are more unreached people in Silicon Valley than there are people who live in 70 different countries throughout the world. We don't need you to go to Panama or Croatia or Liberia, or Uruguay or Lithuania or Namibia. We need you to go to work and represent Jesus. We need you to go to school and live for Jesus. We need you to go to your neighborhood and live for Jesus because there's millions, not just a few, there's millions of people right around us who apart from hearing the good news of what Jesus has done for them will spend eternity apart from him. The mission field is not just far away. The mission field is here. We're living in the biggest mission field in the United States. I hope you start to sense an urgency to live your life as a missionary for Jesus, to live on mission, that you are called to go where he's placed you. Unfortunately, for so many Christians, I think rather than viewing our lives as what a blessing to be here, what a blessing to go and to live in a place like this, we and said, you know what we do? We complain. We complain about the crime. We complain about the politics. We complain about the schools. We complain about this. We complain about that. What if Christians were, would stop complaining about the bad and start praying about the possible? What if we stopped complaining about how bad it is here and started praying about what if God did a work here that turned this around? That we started to see thousands and thousands and millions of people commit their lives to Jesus for his glory. What if we started viewing our lives as missionaries to where God has placed us every single day? The third key in, in, in living out the Great Commission is to practice disciple-making. To practice disciple-making. It says in verse 19, go, do what? And make disciples of all nations. This make disciples is actually the imperative, the, the central function of the passage. It functions around this to make disciples. Notice he doesn't say make converts. It's not, it's not just make people raise their hand at a religious service and pray a prayer and make a decision, but to make disciples, fully formed followers of Jesus. See, a disciple is someone who is a student under a master teacher. 
Back then, of course, they didn't have colleges or universities like how we did now. And so what most people would do is a young person would apprentice under someone else. They would be their disciple and say, yes, this person, whether it's in a trade or something like that, has skills, has things that I want to emulate and learn. And I'm going to come submit myself under them, recognizing they are my master teacher. I'm their apprentice, their disciple, and I'm going to learn from them. They have something I need to lean, to learn and to glean from. That's the same idea of being a disciple, is that we recognize that Jesus is our master teacher. We want to shape our lives to become more and more like him. It's not just that we pray a prayer and that we're in, but that our whole lives start to be formed into what God would have us to be. This call to discipleship in verse 19 goes to to all nations. Everyone's invited regardless of your background, regardless of your family, regardless of your race or ethnicity. Everyone is invited to become a disciple of Jesus. Some key elements then are included along the way of making disciples there to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. See, this is a a public declaration of the allegiance of faith. That that being a disciple isn't just a private decision that you make in your life, but a private decision between you and God. Yes, it has public consequences for the rest of your life. And baptism is that public way of proclaiming your faith in Jesus and what he's done for you. By the way, we have and we'll celebrate baptisms next week here at Morgan Hill Bible Church. If you've never been baptized and you want to publicly say that I'm a follower of Jesus and committing to following him, sign up on our website. We would love to have you baptized next week here at our church. The next thing is that that it says, and to teach them, in verse 20, to teach them this idea that if you're a follower of Jesus, you never arrive. You always have more to learn. There's always room for growth in your life. We're to be lifelong learners and growers of followers of Jesus. We never arrive. Lastly, it says, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, teach them to know all that I've commanded you. He says, teaching them to observe or obey all that I've commanded you. See, sometimes... We think, okay, discipleship, becoming like Jesus, well, I just need to know more about the Bible. Knowing more about the Bible is a good thing, and that should lead to an increased obedience in our lives. But if, if you've been walking with Jesus, and you've been a Christian for, any, for, for several years, for sure, for, for a good length of time, and I would say for most of us, for a lot of us, for sure, the problem in discipleship is not a lack of knowledge, it's a lack of obedience. It's not a lack of knowledge, it's a lack of obedience to what God teaches. Most of us, when we sin, we don't open the Bible, read and go, oh my goodness, I didn't realize that was a sin. I didn't know my prideful attitude was wrong. I didn't know shouting at my kids like that was, I shouldn't do that. I didn't know not loving my spouse wasn't what God called me to do. This is new news to me. I need to change. Most of us, when we sin, we, we know it's sin. It's not a knowledge issue. It's an obedience issue. And discipleship goes to the obedience of our hearts. Discipleship is not just knowing more facts about the Bible or about God, but that our hearts and our lives start to follow him in obedience more and more every single day. See, when we think of discipleship, uh, I think each, relate, each Christian should strive to have three different kinds of relationships. 
Three different kinds of relationships that help us grow together in the idea of discipleship, becoming like Jesus. The first kind of relationship that, that you can that you should have and seek to have in your life are investing relationships. And what I mean by those is those are people who are maybe physically, age-wise younger than you or spiritually more newer into the faith than you and your relationship with them, the purpose of it is, hey, I wanna invest what God has given me and the wisdom and the life that I've lived. I wanna invest that into others. To help, to help pour my life into them and grow and disciple and help them however I can. One of the highlights for me is every Monday night, I get to lead our young adults community group. Not only does it, A, make me feel really old because I'll make movie references like Mission Impossible and they'll all be like, I wasn't born when that came out. I'll be like, oh shoot, I'm so old. I gotta stop talking about the 90s. They weren't alive then. But, but it also is a place for me where my, my whole point in being there is just, hey, how, how can I help you guys? How, how can I pour out? And it's not like, ooh, sit around to Pastor Michael and let him give you his wisdom. But no, I, I've lived more life than they have. And so how, how can I take what God has formed and taught me and just pass it on to someone else and to try to be of service to invest my life into someone else? If you're a parent, this is a primary calling for you in your life at home. That, that the, the primary person that you're investing your life into is your kids. I'm reminded of, the saying a pastor said many years ago, the greatest, if you're a parent, the greatest impact you may make for the kingdom of God is not something you do, but someone you raise. It may not be something you do, but someone you raise. And investing your life in the things that God has taught you, investing into those, into those kids that God has blessed you with. It's a primary calling in our lives. And so every Christian, no matter how young or old we are, should seek to have relationships. Even if you're a teenager today, you can still pour into the lives of those who are younger than you. You can still invest in others. You're never too old or too young to invest your life into serving someone else. The second kind of relationship or what I call growing relationships. Those would be peer-to-peer, those who are in kind of the same age and stage of life and walk with God as you are. That's why our community groups at our church are so important and are such a blessing to so many because it's a chance just to be around others who are going through similar challenges than you are. I can't tell you how many times that I've, I've been so touched and gleaned so much wisdom, not just from reading the Bible, but I was in a community group where someone talked about something in their marriage or in parenting or in their career or in seeking after the future that I was like, oh, I needed that. And it wasn't that I just sit down and read the Bible, but there was someone going through something very similar to me and sharing what they've learned and what God has taught them. Peer-to-peer relationships and growing like that are so important. Seek those out and seek to have those in your life. The third kind of relationship that we should all strive to have are what I call aspiring relationships. Find someone who's 10, 15, 20 years, maybe age-wise down the road from you, or maybe you just look at their life and you're like, man, I want to pray like that person. I want to have the faith that that person has. I want to have the depth of spiritual maturity in 10 or 15 years that that person has. Find people in your life that you would aspire to be like and try and spend time around them. Someone who's further along than you are in the journey of following Jesus and and try and glean the wisdom that you can from them. See, discipleship is about a whole life commitment to following in every single area of our lives to God. That's what Jesus has called us to, not just to show up to church, to make converts, to raise our hands, but to surrender every single one of our lives, every single area of our lives to Jesus. The fourth key in living out the Great Commission we find at the end of the passage, and it's this, to find confidence in God's presence. To find confidence 
in God's presence. The passage ends like this. Jesus says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And now if you know the story, you know the irony of this because Jesus says this and does what? Ascends up into heaven. The disciples must have sort of been like, wait a second. Here, there, where, well, what, what does he mean? He's with us always. Well, if you've been with us for the last two months, you know exactly what Jesus is talking about. That when he left, the Holy Spirit comes and now indwells and empowers every single believer to live out what God has called us to. See, the presence of God is what enables the mission of God in the world. The presence of the Holy Spirit in your life is what enables this mission that God has put on your life to actually happen. Jesus just doesn't say, hey, go make disciples of the rest of the world. Good luck. He says, go make disciples of the world and I'm gonna join you in making it happen. I'm gonna be with you as you go and make it happen. See, for many of us, evangelism or sharing our faith is the scariest thing about following after God. The scariest thing that God calls us to do as Christians. By the way, that's me too. Some of you are like, oh no, you're a pastor. It's very easy for you to do evangelism. It is not. It is not. You're like, well, you get up and talk about the Bible every week. I do, but this is all planned and scripted and you can't start peppering me with questions, right? But if I'm sitting in a coffee shop and someone starts asking me a question, just like you do, I start to think, oh man, what if I don't know the answer? What if, what if they have a really good point, a really good objection? Because there's, there's lots of really hard questions to answer. And there's things, like, so you know what a lot of us do, including myself, a lot of the time, we just don't say anything. Because we'd rather not say anything than not have an answer or be embarrassed to, to, to someone else. But see, the reality is when God calls us to live on mission, to go to the world and make disciples, to share our faith with others, he promises that he will be there with us as well. See, it's, it's so key for us to understand this because it's so important that God doesn't call you to go do this yourself, but he goes with you while he calls you to do this. See, there's a power in not just going alone, but going with someone else to do something. When we were on vacation a few weeks ago, we were up in Oregon and one of the state parks we we're going to visit right next to it was an alpaca farm. And so, of course, we stopped, and there's literally hundreds of alpacas in this farm. So we go in, we get a little bag of food, and our, our oldest is three years old, and we go out there so she can feed the alpacas. It's kind of this wide lane, probably about 15 feet wide with them on either side. They're these cute, really fluffy animals, and our daughter was terrified, right? She's like, what are these big animals? I want nothing to do. She's like walking down, looking at them, like right in the middle. Like, don't, don't touch me. Don't touch me. And we're over there trying to pet them. And we're like, we're like, Aria, do you want to feed the, the, the alpacas? Nope. No, I don't, I don't want to do that. And so my wife takes some and, and feeds them. I had already kind of watches and it's like, oh, they didn't bite her hand off. She's okay. And then I pick Aria up and she's kind of like leaning back away from me as I put some food in my hand and I feed the alpaca, and she looks, and I go, do you want to do it? She goes, no. And so I do it again. I said, do you want to try? She goes, okay. And so she takes it, and very gently, you know, like, trying to figure it out. Of course, it kind of, like, tickles as their tongues, you know, lick off. And then by the end of it, she was practically running the place, right? She's, like, taking fistfuls of food and, like, shoving it in their mouths, right? Like, take my food. This is so much fun. What, what changed? It's that someone went with her. She didn't go on her own, but she knew, and someone went with her. See, will sharing your faith push you outside your comfort zone? Yes. Will living on mission for God make you uncomfortable? Yes. 
but will it cause you to lean on God far more than you ever have? Yes. You don't go on your own. And as you go and you live out this mission that God has called you on and start sharing your faith, you'll start to see God show up in ways that you've never seen before. Because when you sit across from that person and you have conversations about faith and they ask challenging questions and you start to talk and answer and you'll sit back and reflect, be like, I didn't even know that. that that's God showing up and starting to give you the words to say, to be a witness, to be a testimony to him and his grace and goodness in your life. See, for many of us, we're not living this mission in our lives. We're not looking for those around us. We're not seeing our lives as missionaries called to this area. So, so if, if, if we're not really involved in evangelism, if we're not involved in sharing our faith, where, where do we start? Like the, go make up the whole world. Like, okay, that's a big task. I can't do that. Where do I start? I just want to challenge you with this. If you don't know where to start, I would challenge you this week to write down the names of five people that you know and have a relationship with that don't know Jesus. These would be people that you come in contact with. This isn't like that extended relative you see at Christmas once a year or some famous celebrity that you don't know. All right, this is, this is a family member. This is a coworker. This is a neighbor. This is someone on a sports team. This is someone, someone you have a relationship with. Write down five people that you know who need Jesus and just start praying for them. Just start by praying for those people. Pray that God would open their eyes to their need for Jesus and then pray, God, would you use me however you would to show them? Would you use me however you would to speak your truth and your love into their lives? And when you start to think and pray specifically for people, you'll start to be amazed as God starts to open doors and opportunities that you've never seen because you just missed them before. See, God's called us to go to make disciples, and he promises to go with you. What if we started seeing this place not just as where we live, but as our mission field? And we know that God will go with you tomorrow to work. It's a holiday. Tuesday to work. He's just as present there with you at work, at school, at home, as he is here at church. That God goes with you to enable you to do the mission that he's called you to. God, we thank you. We thank you first for what you've done in our lives. God, that we have good news worth sharing. Because when we were lost in your sin, in our sin, you came and you died for us. God, I pray that you would burden our hearts for the lost around us. For those that we know and love, help us to start praying for them. God, would we rest in confidence knowing that you go with us. God, and would you do a work in this place? in the Bay Area that can only be attributed to you. God, would you use our feeble, weak, messed up selves, but lives who have been changed by the grace of God to be testimonies of what you've done. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.